This is John. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of months. In the meantime, get him out. You are listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast with myself, Hank, from Fire Force Ventures, and Bindu from the Men Among Men Stories podcast. Huh? Today we are covering a little bit of the other side, looking at a very influential work from Kwame Nkrumah, the first post-colonial independent African national leader from one of the former British colonies in Africa particularly the former colony of the Gold Coast, what is now modern Ghana. The work was very influential as far as motivating and giving guidance to various African nationalist leaders, in particular none other than Robert Mugabe, known for his involvement in the Second Chimaranga or the Rhodesian Bush War. I hopefully am going to try to pronounce the African names and stuff as best we can, as best I can and best you know Bindu can. Um, we are not <laughs> native speakers of the various tongues that there are in Ghana, so we'll do our very best here, but it's a very interesting treatise, and uh, to, to really understand what the guys went through during the Rhodesian Bush War, the enemy that they're dealing with, and to understand, and obviously, what was going through the minds of, quote-unquote, the other side, mm-hmm. um, which... You know, we've explored a lot about the Rhodesian side. Yeah, I was just about to say that. We've done a lot of podcasts on the Rhodesian side of things, but now, unfortunately, there just aren't a huge amount of memoirs from the the ZANU or ZAPU side. Yeah. You mentioned that there's one, but it's kind of very sketchy, its veracity. I don't think we're going to touch it, because it's very sketchy. Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, many of the ZANU and ZAPU fighters were illiterate, so... Yeah, outside the very top ranks, there aren't a lot of soldier stories, but yeah, we it's a long time coming that we've talked a bit about the the African nationalist side, the the other side, the side fighting the Rhodesians. And so this is a, again, this is a book from, I guess, a treatise, if you will, from Ghana, right? Yeah, and, uh, Nkrumah was the first post British Empire uh, African national leader that was actually a Black African, not just appointed there, not not just you know a tribal chief, like he was legitimately the president of an independent Ghana as of 1960. Um, he was the first in a series of decolonization processes that happened across the African continent during this period. And uh, we're going to explore a little bit about him and what his background was, the context of him writing this book, the ultimate inspiration for Robert Mugabe down the road, and uh, how a lot of what is written in this book actually inspires a lot of Rhodesian military tactics, and we're going to be referencing previous podcasts here. If you haven't listened to the previous podcasts that we've done in the past about the Rhodesian Bush War, definitely recommend the episodes on Dennis Krokomp's Bush War in Rhodesia, the A.J. Balam um, memoir of Bush War Operator, Chris Cox's Fire Force and Survival Course. We did, I think, four parts total. And even a little bit of, uh, from the first part of our uh, series on Peter McAleese. It was, it was a full three-part series. The second part, actually. Sorry, the second yes, part. The yes, second that covers half of... time in Rhodesia, in yes. South Africa. So yeah. uh, check out those podcasts. We, we talk a little bit more about the Rhodesian conflict, but, um, you know, the old Sun Tzu thing, know thy enemy, know thyself. It's, it's good to look at the other side and understand what their motivations are and 
Mm. Um, and it's very interesting to see how it actually impacts the tactics of the men that were fighting in the Rhodesian Bush War. Absolutely. A little bit of a digression from what we typically do in this podcast, which is cover the stories of individual soldiers. Uh, but I think sometimes it's good to give a, I guess, wider picture of why individuals were fighting, uh, regardless of what side they were fighting on. Absolutely. Before we kick off, just a few quick plugs. First, for my U.S.-based company, Fire Force Ventures, offering reproductions and moderate iterations of hard-to-get camouflage patterns such as Rhodesian Breaststroke, 3-2 Battalion, Winter Pattern, Belgian Breaststroke, and a few others that are coming down the pipeline. It is now fully open for business in the great state of Texas. If you are in Canada, definitely check out my other business, Canada Camo, built on the bones of the former Fire Force Ventures operation in Canada. Canada Camo focuses on providing curated military apparel and hard goods largely for the North American market where it's a little chillier. What's the word? Uper? Upers. Upers. Uper gear. Uper gear. Uper lumberjack gear, whatever. Got some good... uh you might get some uh, nice sweet things with your package. Yeah, well. Shop of Cola is available there. So check that out. Uh, again, Fire Force Ventures is my U.S. company. You can find them at www.fireforceventures.com. For Canada Camo, my Canadian company is actually camis.ca. A lot of people seem to have issue with that URL. Apologies for that because someone actually had the Canada Camo domain in both .com and .ca. So... I had to take camis. Uh, I actually had a guy message me or DM me on Instagram saying like, hey, your website's not working. And he sent me a screenshot. He had actually written commies.ca. So not commies.ca. We do not condone commies. Camies.ca. Camies.ca. Check it out. That's the Canadian business for Fire Force Ventures. Camies. Also revamping after a very, fairly long hiatus themselves, just like Fire Force Ventures, are our friends at the Commando Block. Now fully back in full swing, providing firearms content from a variety of sources and subject matter experts. You will find excellent articles about all things firearms related, including topics about gear, militaria, combat medicine, fitness, lifestyle, even video games and anime. As part of their ongoing revamp, they are looking to bring on more writers as a creative and collaborative platform for the internet firearms enthusiasts, all spurgs, smees, and enthusiasts are more than welcome to share their passions with the Commando Blog. All those interested in writing right now for the Commando Blog, shoot an email to dawn at commandoblog.com. That's commando with a K. Again, dawn at commandoblog.com, commando with a K. And if you're not a writer, not a problem. We can guarantee that there will be some excellent articles there on the Commando Blog that are worth the read. And obviously, our podcast... You may very well be listening to it there because we are also hosted on the Commando Blog. So check them out, commandoblog.com. That's commando with a K, blog.com. Check them out. And finally, we'll plug ourselves. As many of our listeners are aware, we have a merch store at our website, menamongmenstories.com, where you can get some podcast apparel, such as our world-famous Rhodesian Lion Horn Mugs, as well as copies of some of the books we have featured on our podcast. Um, some of these books are even signed by the author, which is really cool. I own a couple of those. And I'm sure you do as well. Yes. We have also recently just stocked a bunch of historically themed posters, leftovers for us from the former Fire Force Ventures operation in Canada. And we also have a subscribe star. Our content will always be free, but if you'd like to support us, we very much appreciate donations. In fact, you might even say we run on donations. 
Uh, you can also donate to us directly on our merch store. There's a tip jar little application there that's very cool. The donations go a long way to helping us with the physical production of this podcast, interviews, and any future Men Among Men endeavors. So with all that being said, without further ado, let's take a look at Kwame Nkrumah's very important and very influential work, The Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare. Rules of Discipline. Number one, obey orders in all your actions. Two, do not take a single needle or piece of thread from the masses. Three, turn in everything captured. Four, speak politely. Five, pay fairly for what you buy. Six, return everything you borrow. Seven, pay for anything you damage. Eight, do not hit or swear at people. Nine, do not damage crops. Ten, do not take liberties with women. 11. Do not ill-treat captives. 12. Keep your eyes and ears open. 13. Know the enemy within. 14. Always guide and protect the children. 15. Always be the servant of the people. Those rules almost sound like they can come from any Western SOP, Standard Operating Procedure Handbook for any military force. Obviously, the word... quote-unquote people sounds very Soviet or Maoist in nature, but the theory uh, sounds like almost any Rhodesian or South African guide on counterinsurgency warfare, or or even perhaps a treatise for modern day NATO soldiers operating in places like Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, maybe even Russians in Syria or something. It, It could be any kind of modern coin conflict where you would apply these principles. Basically, don't screw with the local populace. Try to win hearts and minds. Uh, don't, you know, follow the Geneva Conventions. Follow orders, right? Those are your arcs. Some of and, these even sound like outside military, like reform school kind of like instructions, like don't hit or swear at people, be polite. Yeah, like, so like they, they yeah. could come from anywhere, uh, and, and definitely in a military context, if we were to read these out, I think people would recognize that these are fairly good principles to abide by. Despite the substance of these rules, they don't come from a particularly strict schoolmaster. They don't come from a military man. They come from a fellow who was ultimately a perpetual activist who towards the end of his career found himself very much in over his head. And this man was Kwame Nkrumah, who for a time was the president of Ghana, as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. He was the first post-colonial, like former British colony... Sorry, what's the statement? It's a bit of a word salad there, but first post-colonial leader of a former British colony. And that was the former British Gold Coast, the uh, now modern-day Republic of Ghana. He is a, he's a bit of an interesting character. We're going to talk about, a, about him before we kind of get into these rules of discipline that he writes about. And basically from these rules of discipline, he builds out this entire handbook of revolutionary warfare, which we're going to look into because the book has incredible influence on the Zimbabwe 
uh, nationalist movement that was engaged in combat operations against the Rhodesian security forces and uh, definitely impacted probably ANC militants and SWAPO militants later on in Southern Africa. Had huge influence in the Ultramar, the Portuguese colonial war. So you see elements of this book appear not just on the side of the African nationalists that were trying to throw off the yoke of these quote-unquote colonial powers and imperialists. Uh, You also see the... um, You also see a lot of these tactics actually applied by the other side. Because this document was never really intended for public consumption. It was intended as kind of a secret manual to ferment revolution and be successful. Uh, Nkrumah himself, interestingly did not foment revolution. He did not ever engage in a war of independence in the same way as many of the other uh, African post-colonial nations did. He got his power relatively democratically, relatively peacefully. In fact, he had no military experience. He uh, he had no um, like background in, in any of this stuff going into it. And uh, he Bindu and I have a bit of a digression on our views of him. I know you want to you want to jump in there. Well, I was just going to say, as far as we know, he never fired a gun in his entire life. Yeah, this is not, not a a man of action, not a military man, not a violent man, uh, but a man who's definitely keenly interested. I think you could say in those things. Yes, he he's not your typical Mao Zedong. Let's put it that way, right? Um, he's barely even the Lenin. In fact, he's somewhat incoherent at times. However, it cannot be understated the impact of what he talks about. As simplistic as it is, um, a lot of these things like basically impact the course of the Rhodesian Bush War and the South African Border War, um, the Portuguese Ultramar. We see elements, just little little bits of it that peak at all the time, everywhere. And it kind of comes from this book. So it's interesting that we're looking into this. I don't think we're going to make the argument today that he himself was a man among men. Um, but yeah, I think we agree on that. Yeah, yeah. But certainly um, he he definitely impacted many of the men among men that were fighting out there. So again, we're going to talk a little bit about him, and then we're going to look into uh, the actual contents of this work. Again, it is very important. We're going to have some background on the situation as far as decolonization goes in the 1960s in Africa just the idea of African nationalism and pan-Africanism in particular we're also going to be talking about the direct influence that he had on ZANU we're going to be talking about the organization that he stresses both at a strategic level and also a tactical level which is again rather strange because a guy doesn't have any military experience at all Um, his only foray into military affairs is actually during the Katanga crisis, and it's relatively minor what his role is. So it's very interesting that he actually like lays out both a huge overarching strategic plan down to a very, very tactical level on how to operate. For what it's worth, it's interesting stuff to read because this is what a lot of you know the later African nationalists followed. Even though, again, he has no experience, he's just kind of making this up. Um, he talks about the idea of ter- dealing with turncoats and traitors, and there's a little bit of a contradiction that we'll point out, and 
tied back in with Zanu in the development of a young Robert Gabriel Mugabe. And uh, and finally, there's just a... It's rather short, but towards the end of the this work, he mentions stuff about the actual standards of both operational uh, success, what that should look like, and the physical and mental fortitude and fitness of the individual cadres and soldiers uh, going out to engage in this great revolutionary war. And those same standards and operational objectives become the very same ones exercised by the likes of the Salute Scouts, the Rhodesian SAS, the South African Reckeys, 3-2 Battalion, all kinds of special forces units follow this, you know, again, this thing was leaked to them, and they kind of followed the same playbook, recognizing that this is a rather successful tactic and can gain us a lot of strategic ground with relatively minimal tactical risk, utilizing very, very hard men for very, very um, big operations, right? And that that's just basically the story of the Sluice Scouts. Hard dudes for a very f- small number of hard dudes doing being serious force multipliers in a conflict. And uh, this is this is what Nkrumah preaches, and this is what the Sluice Scouts later follow. And at the same time, this is what Zanu is trying to do, and what Zip, uh, Zapu is also trying to do at the same time. So it's rather interesting that both sides are hugely influenced by this. But without further ado, let's talk about Nkrumah himself. Um, he is born in the colony of the Gold Coast. Uh, his his early childhood, in being born in 1909, so prior to World War One, at kind of the height of the British Empire, arguably. The British Empire is very secure. The World Wars had not happened yet. The British had just won the Boer War. Huge swaths of Africa were now strictly under their control. There's a few German colonies. There's French colonies in the north and, and the east, but the, like largely the west and the south they owned. There are very few non-colonial independent African states at this time. I think there's just Ethiopia. Liberia. Was Liberia completely independent, or I thought it is like, kind of a U.S. puppet state at this time? Kind of a U.S. puppet state. Like it's, I guess you could say they're like they're like nominally... Okay. Yeah, it's kind of confusing. So, but generally speaking, like they have, generally speaking, there's not that many. That's my point, right? Mm -hmm. There's really like the only independent state was Ethiopia. Um, Full, not just notional independence, but yeah. So everything else was through the scramble for Africa in the late 1800s. The Brits definitely won out. They had a lot of Africa under their control, and he was living a relatively carefree life. at a fairly young age, he gets sent to a Catholic missionary school, and he kind of he kind of cycles through different schools, generally run by the Catholic Church. At one point, he's at a school for Jesuits, or run by Jesuits rather, and he tends to really like the discipline of the Jesuits. Now, he himself, as a character, was a little just from all my reading of him and some of the like kind of unofficial biographies and his personality. He seemed to be a little bit ADHD. He's a little all over the place, right? I'm sure, like, we can probably all relate to that <laughs> yeah. sometimes being a young kid in school and, like, going to a school with Jesuits and stuff. He probably... It might not have been, like, the best environment for a lot of kids that are, like, that ADHD, but for whatever reason, he really liked the discipline that the Jesuit schoolmasters imparted on him. 
because it you know kept him kind of under control without trying to do too many things at once, I guess. Uh, he doesn't have any personal memoirs of this period. There's just, there's just stuff that's been written about him, obviously. I don't think he himself wrote a full uh, autobiography of his life. And we'll, we'll get into why, because <laughs> it was pretty chaotic for a while uh, once he came to power. In fact, his, his tale of coming to power was pretty chaotic. Um, but he, he never really wrote a memoir about his life. But what we do know about him was he was kind of all over the place. and He, he, he tended to be a middling student. He wasn't an amazing, super intelligent guy. Um, but despite that, he really wanted to kind of see the world and learn a little more. Uh, he was introduced, again, also at a very young age by one of his teachers by the name of Agre to the ideas of Marcus Garvey in the United States, which preached basically like black nationalism, so it's like a like Africa for blacks, America for whites kind of deal. Yeah, like very... The, the Back to Africa movement. Yeah, very much. Yeah, Garvey was very influential in that and basically was one of the first people to preach like kind of pan-Africanism, like all of Africa being kind of a united continent. Yes. I think Garvey was, if not the first, one of the very first people who preached something like that. Yeah, so he's really enthralled by that idea. And uh, he initially, like, basically begs a bunch of relatives to send him money to go to London. And via London, he tr- well, initially he tries to enroll in the University College London. He doesn't get accepted. Again, he's a middling student, and and to be fair, this is the 1920s. Actually, sorry, 1930, this is the 1930s now. Um, it was around the time uh, Italy annexed Ethiopia. It's the 1930s, and to be fair, he's a black man in 1930s Britain. I'm not sure that they would look... Let's just say there was no affirmative action back then. Maybe there was, but it wasn't for ethnic minorities. Yeah. Okay, so he's trying to enroll in a, like, predominantly white school in in Britain um, in the 1930s. Probably almost like, exclusively. <laughs> almost exclusively. There might so, be one Indian guy. Yeah, so, yeah. like, he, he doesn't get in, right? He doesn't get in. Um, it's not a huge surprise to him, and he kind of wants to go to the U.S. anyway. So from the U.K., he begs people for even more money, all relatives, and um, he goes to the United States. It seems to be a recurring theme with the uh, revolutionary leaders that they have to beg, beg a lot of people for money. They never, they're never independently successful, right? Until they suddenly are politically. Funny how that happens. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I digress. He makes it to the United States, to Pennsylvania, where he enrolls in the. I think it was. It is a predominantly his, like black historical college. Um, that's that's Lincoln. And uh, it's Lincoln University or Lincoln College? It's Lincoln University. It's Lincoln University. Yeah, yeah. so in, in Pennsylvania, he enrolls in Lincoln University, which was basically like a segregated blacks-only school at the time. And he's introduced to even more ideas of W.E.B. Du, uh, Dubois, right? Yes. And uh, Marcus Garvey. Yeah, Dubois was very much in sort of... I wouldn't... He is a Marxist. I'm not sure I'd call him a communist, per se, like a hardline communist, but Dubois basically figured that Marxism was the path towards, quote-unquote, black liberation in the United States. Right. Now, sometimes at odds with the ideas of Garvey, but obviously, like, just he just hearing these ideas, and he's, he's really swayed uh, 
more so by the ideas of Garvey than his former schoolmaster Agre, who was a, I think he was also a, I believe he was a Methodist educated. He's some sort of, you know, probably Catholic educated mm-hmm. or something as well. He's quite influential in the uh, 1910s and 1920s in Ghana or the Gold Coast at the time. He uh, he mentions like his whole thing was basically there needs to be a symbiotic relationship between the races to be prosperous, whereas Garvey again is Africa is for the blacks and it, it ends yeah. there, right? Like yeah. it's just we there needs to be domination for harmony, um, which was you know it's kind of a not so kosher theory nowadays. But Garvey was also a bit of a. An eccentric, we'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. he wanted he wanted to be king of this unified Africa. Yes. I think I'll just put in that. And he accused uh, a certain Italian dictator of ripping off his ideas. Yes. So, so yeah, yeah, controversial figure. Yes. Perhaps. But this is who Nick Ruma really looked up to. And in fact, even like all of the upbringing that he had, which a lot of the Catholic education he had growing up was. Like a symbiotic relationship ultimately is what's going to end a lot of the issues of colonialism in Africa. All the imbalances is if we work symbiotically together. Um, he heard that idea. He didn't like it as much as the domination idea. Right? So, unfortunately for him, again, he's a middling student. And even though he's in a historically black college, and generally people like his nature, he's a good natured guy, he's likable. Um, he's not he's not particularly intelligent. Uh, he drops out of Lincoln. He never finishes his program. Drops out of there. He later drops out of uh, the London School of Economics. He goes to he he goes back to the UK. You know, cap in hand. Enrolls in the London School of Economics. Drops out. I think barely two semesters in. Um, applies again to University College London. Gets in this time. This is now the 1940s, and again, he drops out. <laughs> like, he just, he never actually ever finishes a academic program, except for his, I guess, primary, secondary schooling, and he gets a teacher certification in Ghana. He's originally a, a school teacher, very briefly, about a three, four-year period as a school teacher. Um, he, he never actually finishes, like, a high-level um, post-secondary academic program. He's just there for all these like introductory courses to certain things and certain ideas. And, th- and this is very important to how he shaped not only his own ideology, Nkrumahism, which wasn't really an ideology, but he, li- he liked to think it was, <laughs> and, uh, and obviously this Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare. Um, and you'll see this recurring theme that it's a lot of simple themes, right? And uh, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting to explore this side of Cold War history because a lot of Cold War history is very complex. This like dynamic between the, the capitalist West or like in the first world versus the second world and the, the communist, the East, right? The Reds, the Red Red Blurs Blue Team, but there's so many like dynamics between them and the story is like a lot simpler in Africa sometimes when, when you look into it and understanding this guy's background. He never finishes an academic program because honestly he's just not very studious. In fact, and I, I'm not, like, I want to emphasize, we're trying to be as unbiased as possible about this. Even if you're detecting some sort of bias in my, you know, discussion of him. Um, I know he's like a national hero still in Ghana and stuff, but to be real, uh, the assessment of his fellow, like, bohemian socialist friends that were studying in these schools with him, 
such as the likes of CLR James, very, very important uh, communist thinker. He was a hardline Trotskyist, a hard, like, anti-Stalin figure who was a Trinidad-born British subject. Um, he basically calls him a moron. I'm going to read the exact quote, okay? So no one can say I'm, like, overly... I guess being unfair. Yeah, I, I'm not being unfair. Like I'm, I'm, I, I like this cr- critique is justified. Okay, because the exact phrase in a letter that he writes, um, introducing him to another socialist figure, because basically Nakrum is just like trying to meet people at this time and figuring out what he wants to do in the world. He's a relatively young man, uh, and he gets the idea of like maybe Ghana should be independent with like black as a black dominant country. Um, he's trying to figure out what he wants to do. He's kind of turning into a budding activist of sorts and rubbing shoulders with these communist and socialist intellectuals, even though he doesn't really declare himself as a communist or socialist. Uh, the exact letter, or sorry, the exact quote from the letter is as follows. This young man is coming to you. He is not very bright, <laughs> but... Nevertheless, do what you can for him because he's determined to throw the Europeans out of Africa. Uh, I believe the communist term is useful idiot. Yeah. Yeah. He was very much viewed by serious, like, academics who were, you know, left-leaning at the time um, as... uh, uh, and obviously, like some of like the Soviet Union exists at this point, so there is a communist state, right? And there's there's an apparatus, and there's funding, and there's some serious um, academic thought and rigor now going into communist thought. It's a little more than just the Communist Manifesto, right? There's a lot more thinking that's going into this theory because really just because the Soviet Union now exists, and uh, he is a indeed a, a useful idiot who these socialists do see as like, you know what? His head's not all there, but his heart's in the right place. Um, And they continue to like kind of, again, he's able to kind of live off of handouts throughout this period and and funding from different sources and relatives and friends, despite never getting any serious credentials. Um, During this period, he's just, I think he's like a dishwasher at different points. But because in... The Gold Coast, the level of education, despite the fact that the Gold Coast at this time was the probably one of the best British colonies in Africa as far as economic prosperity, World War II really, really changed that. Uh, massive inflation, massive overstretch of the British military establishment. Now they're just like, we can't, we cannot police the empire anymore. Um, huge concerns about soldiers' pensions and compensation for war service. The uh, Royal West Africa Frontier Force, the Gold Coast Regiment, had tens of thousands of men, if not like hundreds of thousands of men, from that region that had served in the Second World War, particularly during the very rough years of the Burma Campaign. And uh, they had come home to rapid inflation. The coca crop, cocoa, coca, cocoa, cocoa crop, which had been a huge uh, cash crop in the country, and the reason why it had been so economically successful and therefore peaceful had completely like failed because of inflationary reasons. And the Brit and at at times like the British ordered that the crop be burned, despite it being a cash crop, just because of inflationary reasons. Like, do not 
let this crop go out to market, right? Like destroy the crop. And a lot of people were not happy with that. You had tens of thousands of veterans on the streets protesting. Uh, in 1948, you actually have this incident called the Accra riots where a bunch of soldiers are protesting in the streets and um, British police officers open fire, killing several uh, veterans who were guys that had just fought for the British Empire in the Second World War. I think three guys were killed in this incident. It was extremely tragic. It didn't need to happen, but it, it happened because, you know, these guys showed up with papers in hand and basically a police officer overreacted and shot at them. Um, really unfortunate that this happened, but it was a there was a brewing discontentment that was definitely leading to a very revolutionary mood. And in 1945, right after the war... Nekruma is actually invited back into the country by a uh, fella who, what was his name? I wrote his fucking name down here somewhere. Oh, there we go. So in 1945, as all, all this stuff's like starting to happen, right before the Acre riots, he's invited back to the country. Nekruma is invited back to the country by this extremely wealthy merchant, George Alfred Grant. And, Today, he's recognized as Pa Grant because he's the, I guess, the founding father of Ghana. Um, but he's, he's char in charge of this party called the United Gold Coast Conference, which had uh, predated any other independence movements in the Gold Coast. They were the first, like, independence party. Um, it wasn't truly a political party in the sense that we would know them today. It wasn't running for elections and stuff right away. It was, it was a conference initially, and it slowly morphed into a political party. Uh, Grant was more on the side of we want to have a symbiotic relationship with the the whites in this country and be successful and everybody can be successful. Uh, but he recognized that Nkrumah really knew how to public speak. He really knew how to get a crowd going. He was he sounded educated. Now again, yeah. he was not educated. And I want to emphasize this. He dropped out of every program he ever went into. Mm -hmm. He never finished. He, he didn't even have any civil service experience. He had no military experience. He had very little actual experience participating in actual political activism other than showing up basically to little communist bohemian get-togethers and listening to someone read <laughs> Marxist literature. That was the extent of his education, but he sounded smart. And for the average uh, citizen of the Gold Coast, he... Uh, he sold it pretty damn well, the, the cause of independence for Ghana. Eventually, um, he gets so popular that he is convinced by his own followers, as, as Pa Grant's influence diminishes, to start his own political party, the Convention People's Party. And uh, in, in a very, in his own simplistic way, he, f he figures out, like, we need some sort of symbol that people will recognize with prosperity and, and success and happiness uh, because in the 1950s particularly I think the 19 period between 1950 to 1952 the British were like okay we're not you're not going to be our problem anymore we're decolonizing right we're not mm -hmm. going to be responsible for you this is too much effort we don't have the money for this. We're hyperinflated. We're still rationing food in the United Kingdom. Like, we can't do this anymore. Um, here's a plan towards independence. You guys are going to have democratic elections for the first time. We're one man, one vote. Uh, you're going to have 
I guess, election cycles now. You're going to have polling and polling stations. You're going to have ballots. You're going to have chief returning officers. All that crazy, you know, parliamentary democracy stuff. All You, you just get it now, right? All of a sudden. And uh, all these terms were new to the people of Ghana. And um, he picks a symbol to represent his party, and it's it's the rooster, because, you know, roosters are good luck. They, they protect the chickens. They... You wake everybody up in the morning, important far part of the farm. Um, a lot of Ghana is, well, the Gold Coast was very agrarian at this time because of the cocoa crop. And uh, it was a really, really good symbol. It was a real good symbol. Um, the opposition party, I think they're called actually the NDP, the National Democrat Party or National Democratic Party, um, being in their simple African way, <laughs> pick a symbol of their own, which is a beheaded chicken. So basically... <laughs> You had you had a party that every time Nkrumah would give a speech, um, he'd carry around like a rooster, basically, and he'd like hold up the rooster, and people would cheer like, "Prosperity!" You know, the rooster. And then the other party, um, I guess, couldn't come up with the design for their logo in time. You know, this is the '50s in Africa, so we'll give them a break. But um, they're not exactly, you know, this is very new to them. So they just get a they just get a rooster and they chop its head off. So they're carrying around on like a pike a dead dead rooster every time, or they, like, sacrifice a rooster at every rally, and people are like, that's cool, I'm voting for that, that's cool, I like the, you know... That's awesome. That's actually, like, 1700s, like, English, like, township politics. Yeah, it was. Yeah, 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 like, it's... Again, this is the first time in these colonies where they had heard that, because everything prior to that was very local. If there were anything even close to elections, it would have been something local, tribal. Yeah, everything was top-down before then. This is the first time there's, like, actual mass movement, elections, democracy, etc. Yeah, and largely because of the Acre riots, the Brits were like, this is going to turn into India all over again. Yeah. So they're just like, yeah, we're just, we're done. Yeah, Britain's also basically functionally broke at this point. Yes. The empire's splintering. We'll talk about that more later, but it is in a very rough state. uh, He wins the election... And he gets elected prime minister, right? The chicken party triumphs. 1952, he's prime minister. Um, very famously, he dances with Queen Elizabeth. I don't know how true that is. It was shown in The Crown that he had a very famous dance with Queen Elizabeth. Um, around that time when he became prime minister. He was still in the Commonwealth until 1960. Um, 1960, he declares independence. Overall, he rules the country for 14 years. Initially, he's, like, very democratic, I guess, but in his simple way, as, as, as problems start compounding, uh, he doesn't, I guess, think things through long-term. He tries to find these short-term solutions all the time to all these problems. Now, he does notionally claim that he's a socialist, but he does weird stuff that's not very socialistic. Um, he doesn't quite nationalize things in the same way a socialist does, like... He sometimes just lets a free market go to town, and as a result, at at, uh, at the onset of his rule in, 19, in the 1950s, 1952, he, the cocoa crop is like 300 times better than at the end of the Second World War. So it had gone like up like three times, which is huge. Uh, people suddenly had money again, and then as his rule went on, you know, markets fluctuate, cocoa crop went down, and uh, they just became independent, and they no longer have any, I guess, support financially from the British government, with exception to uh, military support from lone British officers that were training the new army of Ghana. Um, 
the economy started to decline. And then there's like random discontentment. He dealt with like random coups over generally just ego reasons or tribal reasons. Uh, he ran on a platform as well of we're going to kind of step back away from tribalism to stay united. It didn't quite work out. <laughs> and uh, there's just random tribal squabbles that keep kept coming up. And he tended to have a really harsh reaction to it rather than trying to be particularly uh, diplomatic and slowly he kind of pushed himself towards a authoritarian corner at the same time he started to try to develop a somewhat of a cult of personality around himself because ultimately the guy was not very successful in his previous life and all of a sudden just just happenstance um he is all of a sudden very very successful and, and in, the 19, in 1956, after the Suez Crisis, he rubbed shoulders with none other than uh, Gamal Nasser of Egypt. Egypt had become fully independent. They had basically flipped off the entire Western world, gone their own way, and declared that we're going to create this great pan-African continent state. The whole continent's going to be one big, great country. It's going to be amazing. Garvey's dream. Garvey's dream. And... Um, this is one of Nkrumah's other platforms was Pan-Africanism because he's influenced by Garvey. So he actually goes wife hunting in uh, in Egypt. He sends a buddy of his to go find him a wife in Egypt. His only rule is that she's Christian, but she doesn't need to speak his languages. <laughs> that was it. So he get, he finds a wife, this unfortunately poor woman by the name of uh, Fatia Halim Riz who uh, later changes her name to Helena, Helena Ritz Nkrumah when she arrives in Ghana. They get married. Apparently it was a very unhappy marriage. It did produce three children, but it was a purely political marriage to show that Nkrumah was part Egyptian now, right? Even though they're on like kind of not direct opposite sides of the continent, they're a little bit far from each other. They're separated by the Sahara Desert, and yeah. like it's in a diagonal way. They're they're not close. They're not close, but you know, spiritually, like in his heart, he's yes. like saying to the Egyptians, "Like we're close. We're part of this. Yeah, we want to be part of this quote, like literal third world thing." You do because Nasser was big on rejecting. I know he cozied up to the Soviets at some point, but he wasn't. He very much wanted his own thing, not yes. the West, not the East. We want our own thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's that really appealed to Nkrumah. Um, at the time, the Soviets, the Chinese, and the United States, and the uh, British authorities, everybody was still courting them. In fact, even Canada. Canada sent a uh, contingent of soldiers there. Not on a UN mission or anything, but on a Canadian Army training mission to actually like train the... Uh, Ghanaian army mm-hmm. which is very interesting so that they're being courted kind of by all sides at this point and he can go any other you know he's, he was always a bit left leaning but he could go any direction um, but Nasser had had it going on in 1956 so he marries an Egyptian woman but he's not only moving towards an authoritarian tendency and ultimately declares himself a republic breaks off from the commonwealth completely declares himself president um he just starts like suspending every election, <laughs> the typical dictator stuff. Suspending every election, and I I don't know if it was malevolence because I ultimately I think this guy he had faked it till he made it, and when he made it, I don't think he really knew what to do. 
Um, and all he could really do was believe the myth that the people believed he was, that he was this great Mao Zedong-esque revolutionary leader that had defeated the British in like a glorious holy war, even though he had never fought a war of independence, right? He didn't have, he didn't have the vibe of like a Sankara or even like a Mugabe in 1981. He wasn't a great hero of a revolutionary war. He wasn't his country's George Washington. He was, he just happened to be the first guy, but he had to believe that myth that he had, he had broken the back of the British empire. It was him. So to develop his cult of personality and also deal with, I guess, his crippling loneliness at this time, because he didn't, his, I guess the biggest thing was a language barrier. He didn't speak his wife's language. Yeah. Which would have made for awkward foreplay and bed talk, but he, he didn't speak his wife's language and Dinner would have been a bit of a chore. Yeah, he started going around the world at, at this time just to flex, and he seemed to like the Eastern powers more, and he became progressively more socialist in his uh, theorizing. Now, he doesn't ever, and it's interesting, because in, in the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, I was expecting to see the word, like, we are proud communists everywhere, because it influenced so many communist guerrilla groups later on. He exclusively uses the word socialist, well, we went through the. I think I went through it like five times to just find a word communist once. He just calls himself a socialist. His rhetoric, though, is very like just straight up Soviet, but he's he identifies as a socialist. Um, he starts writing a bunch of like treatises that are all rather simplistic, sometimes very self contradictory, but at the same time, he's writing a lot. Um, he's visiting Hanoi, he's visiting Peking, he's visiting, I think he visited Moscow, he visited all over, all over the, you know, eastern part of the world, and, uh, he started wearing a Mao Zedong suit, but, again, all the stuff that he had, I guess, managed somewhat poorly in his country boiled over, and in 1966, he was deposed in a coup d'etat. He wasn't even in the country, <laughs> which, which is, which is bizarre. Because typically, like to coup d'état leader, it's like we're gonna go storm the presidential palace, right? And we'll hack off your head, you know, uh, General Butt Naked style, right? We're gonna go in there, or like you know, Robespierre, like we're gonna get the king, we're gonna like imprison him at the Bastille symbolically and chop off his head. Like that's typically how you do a coup d'état. Yeah. The dude was literally like on a publicity tour in China, of all places, right? Wearing a Mao suit, having a good time. <laughs> he's kicked out of the country. <laughs> just, he's just like, you can't... They basically, like, yeah, random colonel, who's also deposed four years ago. Basically, this sets up a chain of events where Ghana has four continuous coups, and yeah. it's somewhat more stable nowadays, but, like, it, it was not stable for a very long time. It just... It didn't have, like, a straight-up civil war, but... It wasn't a nice place to live for a hot yeah. minute. Um, he's kicked out. He's just like, you're not welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> and he just comes back. There's a big, go away at the airport. <laughs> yeah. He's, he never goes back to the country for the rest of his life. Dies in 1972. And prior to his death, he, he confides to his uh, secretary, who, had, funny enough, he had stolen her um, off the former British colonial governor, a lady by the name of Erica Powell. He was a big, big fan of him, because, again, he was a bit of a charming, likable guy. Um, she wrote an unofficial biography of him, but allegedly he said to her uh, that, like, I, like, did I ever tell you I married not for myself, but for the presidency? Like, the guy was incredibly lonely, and 
we can only imagine how lonely this guy felt. Um, again, he didn't write memoirs, autobiography of his whole life, but I think this this book ultimately that does get published in 1966, actually without his consent, uh, was his way of coping. He needed to do something. He needed to put something out there to express all of his frustrations with the imperialist West and what they had done to him. And he, there, there is some evidence actually that the coup, the first coup that overthrew him, um, was CIA funded to some extent. So he definitely would have gotten wind of this, or at least suspected it. And uh, he really wanted to lash out at the Western powers. And he saw what was going on throughout Africa. He saw what was going on in Katanga. He had actually still been president during the Katanga crisis, so he had mobilized soldiers uh, to relatively great effect in Ghana under British leadership to serve during the Katanga crisis with UN forces. They had done very well there, put down that revolt. Um, all of the coups that he dealt with, or coup attempts, rather, that, he, that happened while he was in the country, he had dealt with. Like, he never was overthrown while he was physically there. It was only when he left... It all fell apart for him. And he was just like, man, I kind of screwed this up. So, I, you know, my vibe is he was writing this manual as kind of like a way to almost lash out at, at the West for kind of screwing him over. Um, things had not gone his way, and he didn't live long after this. Spent the rest of his life in Conakry, Guinea, as an exile, writing. 1966, this, this treatise is leaked uh, by the Western media, by Western agents, according to him, but by his own word, he says, my enemies and the CIA have released this book. If you're a Westerner, don't read this piece of it. <laughs> but if you are a budding African nationalist and you want to have your own holy communist war revolution, right? this is how you do it. That's the context behind this book. That's the context behind Nkrumah as a figure. And I, I felt... A lot of the book is very simplistic, is sometimes contradictory, but it's very readable. Despite it, like, if you really think about it deeply, it's kind of incoherent, but for somebody either working for BSAP Special Branch or Salute Scouts, it's really readable to understand what is the mindset of the African nationalist, right? Because he's writing this from, like, almost a place of pure anger at this point, because I think he had written it right after Rhodesian UDI, and he had just been kicked out. And it looked like the West was winning. And uh, he didn't have a lot of years left. He was getting older. And his health was failing, right? Yeah. Although I will say, so, I will say as a slight counter to that, he does state in his book that he believes African independence is, is inevitable. inevitable. yes. And he even, there's even a point in the book where I'm not going to read it, but he states that... It's not even a moral, but a scientific fact. Yeah, we'll we'll, that, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah, but um, that it also, will be free. We also do have a digression because again, I'm my assessment of it. You know, based off everything I said, it's just I feel like he was real emotional, and and it ends up feeling pragmatic at times. Some of his solutions to which we'll talk about, and we we kind of reference them in the rules of discipline, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they're very interesting in that they're actually very well-written rules. He contradicts some of them later on, but and obviously Zanla and Zanlu, Zapu, in Rhodesia, the Rhodesian bush were contradict these rules various times. They don't follow Geneva Convention stuff. They don't treat civilians nicely. Yeah. Um, but he is like these are good rules to follow, right? And ultimately, 
it's through following these rules. It's not the massacres and the great, you know, the kill counts that win the wars. It's like winning the hearts and minds of the people, which ultimately this book is designed to do. Right? And it can equally be count, uh, utilized in an insurgency context as well as a counterinsurgency context. So that being said, some of the stuff comes off as very pragmatic. I think it comes from his dopey, <laughs> dopey uh, emotional state. But you, you and I disagreed on that, I think. Well, not hugely, but yeah. where I would go... To me, he seems like somebody who's kind of ideologically obsessed in a very, like, young, naive way. Like, I think he really believes in this pan-African uh, revolutionary socialism, communism. It's his, it's his god. Yeah. And occasionally bits of pragmatism kind of slip through his thinking, but I... I see him as somebody who is very much kind of ideologically obsessed. And I think he just he's, wasn't happy. I, I don't think he's <laughs> not like he's not a very canny revolutionary. He's not super pragmatic. Yeah, he's he's a little different than your typical revolutionary. Yeah, he seems more to me somebody he he seems more honestly like the dumb kid at college who believed all this stuff but never knew how to play. And then somehow became president. And somehow became president. Yeah, yeah, that is to me, he seems like he's no it's different like, thinking than your average like millennial communist. But just, he managed to like take power. President AOC? Yeah, President <laughs> Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But at least we're, we're she recording, has some... We're recording this in 2022. We hope in the future whoever's listening to this in the future that... That did not happen. That, anyway. that this comment aged well, not the other way around. Yes. Yeah, yeah, carry on. Yeah, um, but I mean, even she's got like some political leadership she had experience. In her, yeah, in this her, guy had nothing. He, th- he this is leader. yeah. This is like literally if you know the yeah your average millennial communist who believes very strongly in these ideas and to some extent is obsessed with them, yeah. writes about them, etc. But isn't really like yeah, putting them into practice is not he, just suddenly becomes president. Yeah, he was basically elevated to prime minister. Without having ever served as anything else, yeah. Honestly, he's like he's kind of like Trump. AOC is <laughs> wrong because AOC is a sitting congresswoman, right? Yes. right now. So she technically has more experience. In fact, Trudeau was a you know Justin Trudeau is another character that yeah isn't all that bright. But Trudeau at he least was, a, he was, an was MP. this and was an MP and was the a son, son yeah. of a former prime minister. Yes, not just a random guy. He's he's Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son. So yes. These "quote unquote" dumb politicians do serve a little bit in some capacity, yeah. and even like Trump, no political experience becomes president, right? No yeah. prior office, but lots of business experience, yes. lots of TV yeah. experience, lots of this that. Yeah. This guy is a school teacher for a few years and a dropout out of not just one, but th- three, three colleges. colleges yeah, uh, that and 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 it declined to one, and then he finally gets in and he drops. He just keeps dropping out of everything, um, and uh, to the point where like. People that I think are not particularly smart lefty types think he's dumb. Yeah, like that's not yeah. a good. It's not a good look. Um, but I'm sure he was a, like people liked him though. He was yeah. always very likable. I seem to recall Queen Elizabeth actually, the late Queen Elizabeth II, did like him when she met him. He's a very likable guy. He's a guy you have beers with, but God forbid if you have him even run like. I think he he would have made an excellent like a business owner. He was, he was like the simple like he he was all about Occam's razor. Um, he that, that's a, not how Occam's razor is, but I know what you're talking. You know about. what I mean? Like yes. it's the simplest 
solution yes. is yeah. the answer. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, you could kind yeah, of yeah. use Occam's yeah. Razor. It's not like the same context, but like, yeah. so, this is, but he was very simplistic in his mindset. Yes. And he wasn't, he was kind of African at times, and at times he was very non-African. It's weird, because he just, he has so many influences in his head that, that's Nkrumahism, it's just incoherent. Garveyism, with yeah. socialism, with anti-tribalism, but at the same time, using tribalism if it advances your cause. Well, and that's where I right? think in some ways he was canny. Like, I think for the most part, I agree with you, this guy is kind of not very bright and I think is kind of, has big, like, ideological blinkers on um, he that are his bread he is and butter. the ideology. Yes. Right? But yeah. sometimes, like playing on, you know, being very, like, opposed to tribalism as a belief, but using it to kind of win that's kind of a more of a canny, pragmatic thing. Right. And all good leaders, no matter what, whether they're communist, democratic, fascist, whatever, um, the pragmatic ones are always the best. The ones who know when to... Yep. Yeah. So, let's actually get into this book, okay? Like, mm-hmm. and we talked about a little bit about the context of the... Um, of decolonization. There was decolonization happening in Kenya, Nigeria... Basically, the Congo it was rather disastrous in the Congo, but it was Absolutely, happening in the Congo. Yeah. Um, and Rhodesia, South Africa, Portuguese colonies were the holdouts at this point, right? So he's writing this in the context of all these conflicts happening. And, um, well, 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 we got some experts here directly from the book on, on his thoughts about what is happening. And um, from his perspective, here's what he thinks is happening with the quote unquote the imperialists and it's in, so imagine if you will even if you are a um, I guess communist guerrilla fighting a RLI unit or something in the bush or you are a uh, Salus scout doing pseudo ops this is actually an important point to note um, this is the what he thinks the perspective of the west is point one Imperialists are waging an all-out struggle against the socialist states and the revolutionary liberation movements through military means and through insidious but powerful methods of psychological warfare, in brackets, propaganda. Two, imperialists have formed an international syndicate of military and economic forces to achieve its aggressive aims. Three, imperialists have, in recent years, assisted in the establishment of numerous puppet governments in Africa. I think this is something you see in a lot of communists and socialists writing, like post-colonial governments that weren't explicitly socialist or Marxist were viewed with great suspicion at best and with worst as puppet governments, which I think is what he's getting at there. Right. So Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, this was a constant, right, with um, Zapu Zanu. Yeah, constantly said the Muzariba government is is just a puppet. This is just a puppet. This is just a puppet. Even though it was like black majority yeah right? well and also the the even though the rhodesians technically declared independence from britain they're they were seen as just a, just a continuation yeah. of the british empire exactly yeah. uh, it, it, funny enough i just also need to mention um in even in mao's little red book and the communist manifesto i don't think i've ever read a piece of literature with like more lists because he has so yeah. many lists of like, yeah. again, I don't mean to rag on the guy too much, but 
You know, there's a reason in your academic writing or whatever, or political writing, like, you don't do, like, too many lists, because it's just, it's real simplistic. There's a reason when you tell somebody, like, hey, I don't want an essay, I want it in bullet form. It's because you want it simple. Yeah. But if you're trying to inspire a, a glo- like, a glorious, you know, uh, political and military victory, right, and you're, you're pouring your heart out with deep thoughts, um, and all you can muster is lists... I don't know. I mean, it technically is supposed to be a handbook, not a not a full big book. But I don't know if he was capable of writing a a tome. He yeah. wasn't capable of writing a Leviathan. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Think. We should we should point out here that this book um, is about a hundred and twenty pages. It's like what buck forty. I think 140 because there's yeah, like there's like charts and yeah. So it's not like yeah. super short, but it's also not like it's, it's, it's not like Adam it. Smith's. It's like to, barely no, that's yeah, wrong book wealth of nations. Of, well, okay, yeah. it's not. It it it's like just a little bit bigger than, um, it's just a little bit bigger than Communist Manifesto. Okay, it's definitely way under Mao's Little Red Book. Mm-hmm. And the Little Red Book was written in Chinese too. Like it was. Yeah. It's maybe not so. The Little Red Book is not so little in, in comparison. There's a lot more yeah. stuff and substance in it. Whereas this is just lists. It's like a grocery list of things that... <laughs> Anyways. Um, Pick up bread. So Destroy imperialist yeah, invaders. Yeah, <laughs> that's like what this is. So, uh, now, you're saying this, that the, his mind as well, the African Revolution, right? And eventually this... And this is what I think really is an important point that motivates the common villager that has like never seen a helicopter before having to fight <laughs> Sky Soul, Fire Force soldiers, um, how is he motivated, or she motivated, right, the female cadres and Zapu and Zanu, how are they motivated to engage in combat operations against these scary Sky Demon things and stuff? Um, and uh, he, you you bring, you bring brought up this, like, science. I think we should read that quote. We'll, we'll read that quote. Well, we'll, re- I, we'll read this quote, because it's... it's yeah. he's, he's talking about sooner or later and how to do it. Yeah. So Africa do it. will be liberated sooner or later against all odds. But it is to be soon, by an accelerated revolution of the people, and a total war against imperialism. Then we must establish a unified continental high command, here and now, to plan a revolutionary war and to initiate action. That's actually not the quote I was thinking okay. of. But I just... On that quote, it is interesting, because he talks... Throughout the book, there are various moral explanations why, you know, this revolution should take place. But he also says that it's not even a matter of morality. It's, like, a scientific inevitability. And this I actually found refreshing, because generally when you read political treatises, it's just kind of... It's preaching from a pulpit. This basically said, this is inevitable, no matter how you feel about it. And what do you mean by preaching from a pulpit? Well, I mean... He's not making a moral argument in this one section about why this revolution needs to happen. It's not the colonialists are bad. It's like this will happen regardless. Yeah. So and that's that's kind of an interesting thing in yeah. a lot of the earlier communists. Like Marx wrote about this, but like Science. these were inevitable. Like he sympathized with them, but they were inevitably what was going to happen. 
the, just the dialectic, right? It was like, yes. this is like the next stage. This is, go, this is what's going to happen. Yes. We will eventually break the dialectic. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. it's interesting because it, I guess there's like a certain type of person that can utilize quote-unquote the word like objective or the word like scientific yeah. to rationalize a very simple worldview. Yeah, and... Right? It's like the I I fucking love science people. Like, yes, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, science will solve... Yeah, like, it's like, okay, great, but... Yeah. Like, we, we, you know, we should all just, you know, have this amount of population or do this or do that and, like, because yeah. it's because science. This is what the... It's just your brain chemist. Love is just a chemical reaction, man. Yeah. Like, those people. Yes. Is that what you're kind of... Now, I know it's a tangent, but, like, that's kind of what you're getting at as far as his... Well, yeah, I'm getting at that, like, yeah, there's kind of... It's just interesting that him framing that. Now, yeah. I will say that generally I find communists are some of the most emotional, moralistic people in the world. They're... <laughs> but, yeah. um, and that, I think their worldview is very kind of almost not too dissimilar from, like, religious fundamentalists in that way. But the way it's classically framed, especially by the early yeah. thinkers, Marx and Engels, scientific. is of this scientific inevitable process. It's weird. Yeah, it's and it's that a is a angle. contradiction. Yeah, it, especially yeah. for the 1960s, a weird angle. Yeah, because it's typically like these people are oppressing. I don't think he uses the word oppression once. Yeah, which is very different it's from weird. any just modern like, context. He's just like it's inevitable. You got to yeah. fight. I yes. think that honestly, that in in a way is. I think it would be scarier for any Portuguese, South African, or Rhodesian military authority reading something like that. Yeah. Because you can just make the argument, like, your idea of morality is wrong, here's mine. Yeah. But if they're saying, like, this is a science fact... <laughs> yeah. Right? It's well, it, it, it's hard to, like... I mean, you can say, like, but here's my science fact. Yeah. Right? But ultimately, like, you won't really... Con it's easier to make a moral... Uh, argument or have a moral debate, yeah. Then like contest someone saying that it's a science fact um, to someone who is going to really resonate with that idea of like this is going to be this is inevitable, yeah. Right. Rather than like we don't know how this is going to turn out, but do you want to be on the right side of history? Just like no, we are going to win. Yeah. Like it's the, like there's the evidence we're going to win. They're mm -hmm. already losing, right? And also it's Nkrumah writing this the first post-independence leader. He actually did it yeah. without a single shot being fired, right? Which should have honestly been a strike against him, but I'm... Honestly, whoever's picking up this book I don't think knows his background and the deal yeah. with his wife and the deal with him dropping out of three schools yeah. and all this stuff, so... Most people probably didn't look too hard into they the just guy saw, like, who he was this. Yeah. They probably assumed he was a Robert Mugabe type figure. Or a Sankara. Yeah. Who was actually military experience, right? Yeah. He was not. He was not those things. Not at all. So, um... Anyways, he also mentions unified command. So let's talk about that real quick. So he draws these like somewhat elaborate charts. Um, he talks about basically we're looking at them now. They're they're insane. Are we gonna? I think we can post these on the website on the page. So we'll post them underneath. The yeah, page. we will post these. Okay, are the... so this is we'll look at chart six first. Yeah. So we'll post. So that'll be on the page if you're looking if you're listening to our podcast on the Men Among Men Stories podcast dot com. Um, sorry, menamongmenstories.com. I always say podcast, though. Menamongmenstories.com. You're listening to us from there. You'll see it in our description. Chart 6. He talks about a strategic plan for this AAPRA. It's the African All People's Revolutionary Army. Yeah. Again, a pan African. Yeah, a lot of this 
handbook is talking about this hypothetical organization and yeah. how it must be created. That would be like a pan-African revolutionary movement with cells in every country. Pardon the pun, much. but it didn't pan out. <laughs> but, that was terrible. Uh, you're yeah. leaving that in the podcast. That was a good one. Yes, I'm so, leaving that. But, um, yeah. The It didn't pan out, but um, the, uh, the organizational structure functionally is real similar with how I guess how Zanu and Zapu and Swapo to some extent organize their, their political leadership. Um, pretty simplistic structure, and also their like tactical leadership on the ground for dudes that were doing incursions into like Rhodesia or Southwest Africa or Mozambique or wherever they're fighting these quote unquote imperialist powers. Um, this structure was real similar. And again, if you're a Rhodesian security expert or whatever at the time, like this was good to know because this is how your enemy is formed. In the same way in the Second World War, um, maybe not in the First World War, but definitely in the Second World War, you see it a lot, a lot of times, that the propaganda stuff footage from that era of the Western Allies, the soldiers before they deployed to places like Normandy or Italy or North Africa, they got training in like what did the enemy soldier actually look like? What was their rank structure? Mm-hmm. Who were their officers? How did their platoons form? How did you know yeah. what were what were the individual sections or squads? What did those look like? Right, that's actually important to know. Are you up against an entire company size? What do they call their companies? Or if you hear that word, is that a colonel or is that or is that like a private? Yeah. Did you, who did you just capture? Is that like Hitler's like field marshal? Yeah. Or did you just capture a random like uh, second lieutenant? Right. You know the, this stuff you kind of want to know. You don't need to be an expert about it, but um, so. This chart like kind of gives that that breakdown. Uh, so this chart six talks about the crazy political nucleus thing. He draws this like it's like a DNA, no, not a DNA. It's like a, it's literally like a nucleus. He's drawing this as living. Yeah, it's like mitochondria kind yeah, of looking like, diagram. <laughs> so basically, formation of political nuclei, creation of armed struggle. Um, they're stationed at bases. They start developing. Ag- phase two is developing agitation centers of armed struggle. Develop and multiply. Advance onto the borders, which we saw in, in Rhodesia. Right? There's agitation, yeah. and then there's border raids. Um, the formation of political nuclei is outside of the like evil empire that they're trying to defeat. Uh, and then phase three is enter into contact with enemy divisions. Hence, have a visible front line and zone of regular compact. Uh, regular combat, but our f- forces have already infiltrated the territory, and the invisible front is in the enemy's rear. So basically, is to form a fifth column inside a country. Typical, honestly, kind of standard communist SOP, and then yeah, actually not just communist, any SOP for warfare. Yeah, form a fifth column, and then send your main force and have a frontline battle. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the political nucleus that has been formed, in addition to the partisans behind enemy lines, that's all been formed. Mm-hmm. And phase three is kill the killing blow, right? We form yeah. a front line, we defeat them. None of these conflicts really pan out in that last stage, right? They always kind of stay insurgencies. Um, again, to be fair, this guy thinks that this would be a lot easier than it actually was. Yeah. So everybody kind of makes it to the second stage, all these, like, guerrilla groups, and they actually win in the second stage because it's all it really takes. Yeah. Right? The third stage of conventional war 
happens very sparingly. It does happen. Yeah. There's there's the Kasingas, there's the raid on the pie, there's there's a few um bit of the Zipra fighting. Zipra um, fighting in Mozambique yeah. and stuff, uh but not super common. Um he also talks about how you organize the units for the phase two and phase three when you're actually engaging in combat operations. So you have uh, political like I guess leadership groups or leadership like political formations mm-hmm. for propaganda pers- uh, purposes so you have a village committee which answers to a district committee which re- answers to a regional committee it sounds like an HOA but it keeps going up there's a territorial committee and then territorial partisan command that also commands the tactical military formations so a platoon company and then a guerrilla battalion a guerrilla brigade um, the regional committee and the brigade are engaged in the front line of combat and then it, uh, the Territorial Partisan Command branches off into a divisional staff, an army staff, a zone operational zone, an army general staff. Those specific terms are very British, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> it's, it's partially because I think um, at the time there were quite a good number of British officers that were still on loan to the Ghana Army, Army of Ghana, right, Ghanaian Army or whatever, Ghanese Army. I don't know the... I don't know the name of their army. Whatever their army was. Right? His army... So he had a lot of British officers that were regular army officers in the British army that were on loan to him to basically train his army as part of the decolonization process. He basically had them on loan for like 10 full years. So I think from 52 all the way to 1962. Even though while he was like a republic, he had them for a full two years afterwards. So he's using a lot of British terms, which is rather ironic. He's not using the later terms that the Zimbabwean... Uh, Independence people, Revolutionary Army, Zipra, or whatever, are using, or Zandla, the Zimbabwe Army of National Liberation, something, whatever, Zandla, Zanu, Mugabe's faction. He's not using their language of like cadres or Soviets or, or I don't know, what's another like, you know. Tovarish, whatever. He's not. He's not using that. Like you know that. that the Russian inspired terminology. Inspired terminology, right? He's using very British terms. So it's kind of funny, but functionally, like they're structured in the same way. Ultimately, is is this this format where there's there is actually a breakdown of command, um, and there's a distinct uh, there's a distinct like military command followed by like adjacent to a political command, a political wing. And they kind of inter, they go up and they intersect at a territorial partisan command, and those answer to separate military or uh, political authorities, right? So the propagandizing part, the psyop part, is really really big uh, as far as the insurgents mindset go. And um, I'm sure anybody that was in again the Rhodesian Security Forces or South African Army or Air Force or whatever that was inspecting this, South African intelligence, uh, they're reading into this very deeply. They, they understood, like, the... As far as, like, they are concerned, um, these PSYOPs people are combatants. They are part of this front line. And that's how the that's how Nkrumah views it as well. That's certainly how the Zimbabwean cadres use them. They were also part of the front line. They were... They might have been armed at times, and uh, you know, I think we we just did Chris Cox books. Like he mentions, like the cadres that he fought that were yelling, you know, "fuck you, Ian Smith" and stuff. Those guys yeah. were commissars or political commissars. Um, they weren't like regularly raiding the Rhodesians, but they were armed. Uh, I don't know if that was always the case. There probably would have been times where they were not armed, 
you know, in the safer area or whatever. They're in Rhodesian territory, so they were armed, but, um, like, these guys are combatants, armed or not. They are combatants as far as he views them, and uh, by extension, you know, that's why the Rhodesians are rather brutal at putting down anybody that was uh, either a, um, they're called the uh, the Mujibas, the, the young boys and stuff that were like informants and stuff like that. This, this is all considered part of the front line. So it's why the South Rhodesians and the South Africans and of course the Portuguese are rather brutal at um, what otherwise would have been viewed as like non-combatants in any other situation, right? Um, they're explicitly saying they're combatants. Not appear to argue the morality of shooting somebody who's unarmed, but in his mind, like, they are soldiers. Um, armed or not, in the same way, they all go to the front line, they all answer to the same territorial partisan command. Called different names by different factions, but that's how he organizes this, this fictional army, uh, kind of in the style of Plato's uh, The Republic, right? He's organizing yeah. a fictional army to win a fictional war, but uh, big influence on Zanu. Huge influence on Zanu. And none other than Robert Gabriel Mugabe actually is a school teacher in Ghana in 1958 around the time... Well, actually, Nkrumah was in charge already at that time. And um, he was heavily influenced. He was extremely impressed by what Nkrumah was able to do. Now, at the time, it, it was still a uh, Commonwealth-dependent. It was functionally independent, but they were a common, like a confederation or whatever. And he's watching this guy have huge economic success, right? He's definitely more black dominant. He's trying to remove... He's, like, removing Europeans from power and stuff. Um, he's taking it away, kind of giving it back to the people, and that inspires Mugabe. And not only that, the economic situation in those early years is actually really, really good in Ghana because they inherit actually a pretty bad situation from the British, all things considered. Now, they have good infrastructure and stuff, and roads and hospitals and schools, uh, but bad economic situation. And he kinds of, because of market situations, or fluctuations, rather, market fluctuations, he is able to turn it around and use it to actually build more schools and more roads and more hospitals and more infrastructure. And um, the number of school kids, I think, like, quadruples during this period, if I remember correctly, or even more. Like, it, it expands by exponents and the literacy rate jumps way up in the country so Mugabe's seeing this as a teacher because he's teaching there right he's, he's literally seeing like semester by semester the school kids are getting better supplies the teachers are getting paid more there's another school being built there's more jobs everyone's happy he's like damn this would be great if I could do this back in my homeland of southern Rhodesia uh, he's hugely inspired by this guy, and I think he, he, he doesn't, um, I had a hard time, I was trying to find Mugabe past the 1958 time when he was in Ghana, when he was teaching there, um, I was trying to find an actual quote from him, it was kind of tricky, because I, I honestly, I wish Mugabe wrote a little more, <laughs> but we all know what he was up to, and that was spending money, and not writing, and not, I wish he actually wrote like a, like, deeper memoirs so we can explore his mind a little bit but I don't think he wanted he didn't want anybody to mm -hmm. um, he was a little paranoid and kleptomaniacal but I, I think like just seeing this like success 
over a relatively short period and this this rapid success um, really inspired him. This is like years before Nakuma's like really dumb downfall. He's left the country and he's like, "You're banned now." Yeah. Right. So, but the the there's um there's a line in the book uh, where he talks about where Nakuma talks about the anachronistic nature of foreign rule over Black African continents. Is like justifying the the Garveyism in his mind. Um, and it's it's interesting because there's a Mugabe quote in 1978, a few years after he's released from prison, where he echoes the same sentiment in a very extreme way. Um, but we'll read we'll read the uh, Nkrumah quote uh, from Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, where he talks about just just his rhetoric, and you can see where the influence um, shows up in Mugabe's rhetoric. Yeah. This will be another list because of, of course. Yeah, because he likes his lists. Yeah. He loves his lists. The imperialists control such zones. A, through an administration manned by foreigners, the territory is then externally subjugated. B, through a puppet government made up of local elements, the territory is then both internally and externally subjugated. C, through a settler minority government. In this territory, settlers have established the rule of a majority by a minority. There is no logic except the right of might that it can accept such a situation. The predominant racial group must and will provide the government of a country. That's kind of edgy. Settlers provided they accept the principle of one man, one vote, and majority rule may be tolerated. But settler minority governments, never. They are a dangerous anachronism and must be swept away completely and forever. So basically, Nkrumah is saying imperialist governments either control a country by... You know, basically having colonial authorities, so like white Brits from Britain in the case of Ghana, B, having a, a puppet government, so black people who answer to the white Brits, or C, having white people who grew up in Ghana. And I'm just using white because that would have been the, the settler dynamics in Africa. Um, as a, as sort of controlling the government. And that's what happened in Rhodesia in the independent state of Rhodesia and in uh, South Africa at this time. Yep. Uh, and basically, Nakrum is saying, these people can stay here and live amongst us, but they have to understand they're not the majority, and the majority will control the country. And, they need, and the last line, they need to be swept away completely forever. Yeah, they, those who resist this change need yep. to be swept away. And... Mugabe in 1978 has a quote, and as you've mentioned, this is actually one of the milder statements by Mugabe. It's the mildest one I could find. <laughs> the ones we can... Uh... Yeah. We do not condone this sentiment. Okay? Yes. we got to emphasize. Like, we, I mean, we explicitly do not, we but yes. We explicitly do not condone the next thing we're about to say. Do not cancel us for it. We don't... Yes. Like, this, is, this is not what we believe. This is not what anybody should believe, I think. I think yeah. it's very bad. I think there's an argument just like morally to be like you need to accept the rule of law, my rule of law, or there will be consequences, right? He's not explicit about violence per se. Just yeah. swept away could mean many things. It could mean Hitler genocide. Everything from Hitler genocide to politically irrelevant, right? Yeah. So he's not explicitly like being violent. Um, Mugabe uses the same like just that based off that last line very interesting how the rhetoric is real similar just Mugabe uses Nkrumah's mindset as a guide to to ramp things up so yeah. 
Listen carefully to the wording. Let us hammer the white man to defeat. Let us blow up his citadel. Let us give him no time to rest. Let us chase him in every corner. Let us rid our home of this settler vermin. Robert Gabriel Mugabe, yeah. not Bindu. Not Bindu. Yes, not me. Say. No, no, no. That would be very unusual for me to <laughs> say something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the and I would say this is like it's building on what Nakrum said, but I would say it's also fundamentally different in a way, is because Nakrum basically wants Nakruma. Nek- sorry, Nakruma. <laughs> Nakruma yeah. wants the Native Africans in charge of the governments. Mugabe is sounding like he basically wants ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Which isn't even like Garveyism, because Garveyism was a basically like the blacks and whites would come to an agreement to have like mutual segregation, pretty much. Yep. Um, he, he was a good old boy in reverse, Garvey. <laughs> yeah. But this is more kind of a violent, kind of genocidal almost mindset. Yeah, I... I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah. But the language, the specific, you know, the, the idea of blowing up a citadel and verse the idea of, like... Because he's talking about the settler. Also, yeah. the word the word settler, settler yes. vermin. So he talks about the... It goes from anachronistic the anachronistic settler to the settler vermin. Yeah. But it's that same, like, visual image of a squatter basically yeah. on your land verse like he's anachronistic he's backwards from the past to I'm gonna put the word vermin in there right yeah. to really roll people up um, mm-hmm. but the language is real similar the re- language is real similar I'm sure that there were other influences in that statement why Mugabe like said that um, it sounds very ma- like Little Red Book, to be honest. Yeah. We went through that, too, because that was published 1964. Yeah. Um, this was not intended for public consumption. It was leaked by, like, the CIA and stuff, the mm-hmm. Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare. Mal's Red Book was intended for everybody. Yeah. Right? It was intended for public consumption. So um, I'm sure that had a little bit of an influence on Mugabe. Obviously, he leaned more towards China and North Korea than the Soviet mindset of yeah. war. So... <clears throat> for that reason, um, it could have been very that like that language could have come from there. But you can see just a lot of the themes, right? Come back to this handbook of revolutionary warfare. On the other, if you're on the other side, you're Rhodesian or South African military intelligence or authority. Again, gotta reiterate. Like, I gotta reiterate, you are definitely gonna be reading into this. You're gonna be reading into these statements. You're gonna be reading into like how they're conducting this PSYOP, exactly what they're doing on the PSYOP side, and exactly what they're doing on the tactical side, what gives them morale, right, and what language riles people up, and what language does not. Um, Because ultimately, that's what you need to know to engage with it, right? Mm -hmm. So, we're going to talk about two more points here. Um, It's amazing, we can talk so long about a relatively short little meme book. Yeah. It's not even, barely even a book, but there's there's a lot going on. We could talk about this all day. Uh, but it's an interesting contradiction between collaborator, collaborators and traitors, right? A lot of this book is like random lefty political mumbo jumbo, quite honestly. Yeah. Like a full half of it, probably. It gets into tactics. We're, we just talked a little bit about the tactics. We're going to go back to tactics. But in between all this. A lot of theory. There's a lot of theory stuff, right? And then and then there's tact. There's this, so there's like first half theory, second half is like tact, actual tactics and organization. 
there is a little bit of a contradiction that we will bring up now, and that uh, is the discussion on collaborators and traders. Now, unfortunately, there's not too much written in this work about the idea of uh, the quizzling, right? Yeah. Everybody hates the quizzling, and it's like, how do you address the quizzling? Do you go all gracious Julius Caesar and offer amnesty, general amnesty, uh, or do you do you go Robespierre? <laughs> you know, like those are your kind of two options. Do you go Reign of Terror or or we are all brothers at the end of the day. This was a civil war and, you know, we're gonna we're gonna uh truth and reconciliation this or whatever. Like what are you gonna do about the quizzling? The guy the the black man who supports the imperialist whites, the settlers, the settler vermin. Mm-hmm. Uh not my words, Mugabe's. But what are you gonna do? And um it, it's kind of ironic. So when he's talking about the freedom fighters, the guys on his side, he's he, you know, he makes this pretty fair point. Uh, we can talk about it, and it kind of dates back many years, well beyond, well before this decolonization period in Africa. But um, the idea of the freedom fighter, the independence fighter, always being treated as not a combatant, not a soldier but just a lowly, petty criminal, and therefore subject to all kinds of capital punishments up to and including death. So the exact quote. When freedom fighters are captured and tried in courts of law, they are treated as criminals, not as prisoners of war, and are imprisoned, shot, or hanged, usually after so-called confessions have been extorted. Basically, freedom fighters, his guys... And he's seen it, I guess he saw this in the Congo or whatever, right? Um, oftentimes, they will be seen. And also, he did spend some time in prison when he came back to Ghana. I should mention that, you know, I didn't mention that in his initial bio. He did spend a few years in prison. He was in prison for a few years. It wasn't pleasant. Um, it wasn't like a Mugabe tier. I think Mugabe spent like a decade, in, over a decade in prison. He didn't have that. It wasn't a Mandela tier prison term. It was relatively short, and it was... He actually didn't do anything. It was just to make an example of the the big six independence leaders, right? So he did spend some time in prison. So he understood um, kind of the judicial boot, what it looked like. Like how a military tribunal might actually be kinder to you because it's like you're a POW. We're going to put you in a POW camp versus like you're just going to get a speedy trial and be hung or something or get a long, hard labor life sentence. Like he probably saw this, right? And it is a good point. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, modern day parallels where, um, you know, it's it's always a controversial subject. But like Guantanamo Bay, like were those people just committing criminal acts against the coalition forces in Afghanistan or Iraq, or were they like are they like prisoners of war and combatants? And there's like a kind yeah. of there's constant arguments. And what's the difference between them and say like the German soldiers we fought in World War One and World War Two? Exactly. For the most part, were treated as prisoners of war. Yes, and like what exactly constitutes, like, uniform. Like, you know, uh, guys that fought for Maktada al-Sadr in Iraq, were those uniform? Were Taliban, like, is 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 literally just, like, a Taliban... Like, like bandana? Is that yeah, around yeah, like, the head and yeah, kind yeah, of a uh, balaclava? Does, does that coexist count as, as a uniform? uniform right? Yeah. You know, there's... You can make... Is, is black... Just the color black constitute um, a uniform? So, there's there's all kinds of, like... There's a lot of complexities with the idea of a prisoner of war. Verse, like, there is no doubt in any state's mind if you are a criminal. 
right? Um, and that's the thing with like political prisoners and stuff. It's like, oh no, you're just a criminal, yeah, right? And that's the where you know the the term political prisoner is so charged mm-hmm. all the time. So it's way more complex to deal with a military prisoner because it's like this guy was fighting for his country. And you always want to make the argument like, no, he wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was—he's actually just a like evil terrorist, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, to be fair, this was what the Rhodesians did. They treated almost very nearly every combat situation in the aftermath of it as a police action. Malayan emergency—it was a police emergency, not an army operation. Uh, Vietnam initially was a police action. French Indochina, right? It became a military campaign slowly over time. But again, very slowly. Like, it's it's somewhat unpopular to declare wars against factions that don't have, um, you know, uniformed personnel. And I think that's why ultimately, like, the U.S. invaded Iraq because it's like, oh, they actually have a real army. We can we can mess up, right? It was, mm-hmm. you know, that's a whole other story. But uh, like, it, the idea of a combatant is complex, and a civil court is just like, I oh, know he's he's a he's he's he committed murder. Because he shot, or he committed an attempted murder, easy charge, right? Mm-hmm. And then he contradicts himself. So he's all this like very interesting thought, right? Yeah. A very interesting critique of the Rhodesians and the South Africans. And then he says this: a suspected traitor should be tried by a military court and given every chance to defend himself. If found guilty, he must be shot. It's amazing that he... So, there's no other elaboration to this. He doesn't say trial. He doesn't say detention. It sounds to me like kangaroo court, and, yeah. <laughs> and then you're shot. But yeah. what's now, your take? Well, I will say one small thing in the crumb's defense. He could be argue like he doesn't say shoot the colonizing imperialist soldiers per se. Yes, he specifically says traitor. Now, to his mind, he might be saying my guerrillas, our guys, are soldiers. The guys they're fighting are soldiers. The African local who betrays... I think he might be using that as a separate category, that that's a more heinous thing than, like, a soldier. But, again, that gets back to the whole... To to, to the original, how is that different than how the colonizing forces view you guys? Also, the other thing is... No, okay, that's that's an interesting point. He's probably thinking about his, quote-unquote, uniform combatants and stuff, and... He's considering everybody, uniformed or not, as basically a true combatant, like a soldier on the front lines, including a civilian political commissar, right? They're still a combatant. Um, You know, and he uses the word traitor explicitly. He doesn't say, like, collaborator or something or sellout. Yeah. However, however, how was it ultimately applied by Zanu Zapu? It was applied as, like, oh, cool, we can shoot collaborators, which they did. Um, Sometimes and those, they did nastier things and they, than to shoot them. They, they, yeah. they, exactly. They broke all of those rules of discipline uh, dealing with collaborators, right? Um, so it's interesting. It's it's just, it's very, like, contradictory. Now, I understand, like, he's probably saying traitors, but how is that really going to be read? And the fact that he gives zero elaboration to this uh, is not unintentional. He's yeah. not a big fan of anybody that probably is, like, a collaborator um, he's okay with useful idiots, though. I should mention there is like a mention that he he says that like basically, if there's like a guy who's really rich, who's like who worked with the imperialist people at one point, but they're like an armchair revolutionary and they're silently on our side, they're okay. He's not he's not against killing the kulaks in the same way Stalin was, yeah. 
right? To be fair, he was interest he was influenced by like very anti Stalinist people. Yeah. So um Well and to be honest, Stalin kind of used the kulaks till they were no longer useful. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, so, but, but in his mind, he's like, no, we're going to keep them because we ultimately need them for long-term economic sustenance and, you know, we, we don't mind their support. They're always going to have to play second fiddle to the true revolutionaries. He calls them explicitly armchair revolutionaries, but they are revolutionaries nonetheless. So he's not, you know, vindictive in that way, right? Uh, however, he's... Uh, it is this. I mean, just this dichotomy. Like our guys are freedom fighters. Yeah. And I can't believe they're treating them like this. But if we catch any of their freedom fighters, basically, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna string them up. That's that's the answer. And it's just like. Yeah. Uh, well, and this so is the mindset that led to necklacing in South Africa, right? Like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's this the the most hated the most heinous thing you can be. Is not necessarily the oppressor, but one of the quote unquote oppressed who sides traitor, with the oppressor. Yeah. The yeah. traitor. You, yeah, you always sure. shoot the traitor before the yeah. enemy. I forget who said that, but. Yeah. Yeah. There's, the Macaulay's books talks about the retaliation killings after the war. Yeah. He mentions one. There's there's a few mentions in uh, Top Secret War by Ron Reed Daly. Uh, like the, the main guy that led the Sleuth Scouts into Operation Eland, which was the probably one of the most successful operations of the war. Like, I think it was four wounded for te- like several thousand uh, terrorists dead. Yeah. Um, all combatants, by the way, all under arms. Like, the, that op- whole operation, the guy that led it was considered a sellout, and he was pretty brutally tortured to death. Uh, lots of stories like this, right? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, last podcast, Pirangondo. Yeah. Head Rwunda, right? Both were considered sellouts, and yeah. in the case of Pirangondo, a little more sketchy exactly who killed him, or if it was just an accident, but Head Rwunda, definitely, he was just a sellout, so we're going to take him over to this other country, doesn't matter whether or not he has one leg or two legs, we're going to take him over to the country and execute him. Um, mm-hmm. If you haven't listened to episode 26, definitely recommend that one. We'll talk about Head Rwunda there, the uh, probably one of the most decorated Sleuth Scouts. The only, uh, actually, one of only two members to have been awarded both the Silver Cross of Rhodesia and the Bronze Cross of Rhodesia. Mm-hmm. And uh, all in one leg, too, because he got his leg blown up in a landmine. Very interesting story. Very tragic end, but um, his end was literally the, the end of a sellout. Right, He was seen as a sellout. He was seen as a traitor turncoat. Mm-hmm. Given up by somebody in his own village and ultimately executed. So, uh, yeah, huge contradiction. And, you know, he writes... that the, There's more that he writes about the idea of the freedom fighters and how the imperials, imperialists... Call them imperials. Imperialists uh, really screw them over and treat them very poorly and are very hypocritical on how they treat them and unfair and it's like we're combatants and all this. We should be treated like combatants, like prisoners of war if we are captured. And at the same time, he writes this only one line about what to do if you deal with your own traitors slash collaborators. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty serious contradiction. Yeah. And at the end of this whole t- little little pamphlet, basically, he, he mentions uh, physical fitness and tactics. I want to emphasize again, he did not have any military experience. He did not serve in combat. His only kind of foray into military affairs was the Katanga crisis, which he didn't personally have a hand in 
the yeah. operational side of. He just basically he was explained up. something by his generals. Then t- he was said, yeah. "Yeah, that sounds good." If that, I think he just rubber stamped like, "Yeah, going yeah. with the UN. Let's look good for the world," kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's his only military experience. Not a lot. Right. And um, he, despite this, uh, writes a pretty good little guide. Uh, very short on the expectations of the physical fitness of the gorillas uh, that are engaged in this fight, political commissars and, you know, combat gorillas, right? He talks about the physical fitness standards and also, like, what they should be developing as far as the actual skill set and operational objectives they should be really good at achieving, right? to win this hypothetical war that he is describing. Um, and these, like, these are, like, Salu Scout things. Almost all of them. Actually, in fact, I would arguably say, like, this is... This probably, like, influenced just the initial um, se- selection course for the Salu Scouts, because this, this is their playbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny how that works. Um, and obviously the Slew Scouts did a better job of this than, than the various communist cadres during the war, but uh, we'll read out this. Another, yet a finalist. The body and its physical endurance must be weathered, strengthened, and developed by exercise by exposure to many varied conditions. For example, marching under conditions of duress. Duress. Duress, right. Marching under conditions of duress. Camping in difficult terrain. Subsisting on short rations for limited periods, enduring periods of isolation in small groups cut off from base, carrying out rigorous individual initiative and endurance tests. Our troops must be trained to operate equally effectively face-to-face with the enemy and in various guises behind the enemy lines. They should be taught the art of impersonation and how to conduct themselves if captured and interrogated. The development of speed and skill is of the greatest importance in practicing attacks, dispersion, regrouping, encircling, retreating, close combat, commando-type maneuvers, and sabotage. So he doesn't elaborate on any of this, basically, but this is a shell guide of almost like Scout tactics. Scout selection course training, especially subsisting on short rations for a limited time, right? We've talked a lot about the baboon eating rotten baboon as part of their course. Yeah, that was pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and obviously limited water, limited sleep, you know, long marches. That's a really common feature. And obviously operating behind enemy lines under various guises, so being able to engage in a pseudo-ops context and also being able to engage, in his words, face-to-face with the enemy, so a conventional, like, gunfight, right? Being able to win the gunfight. Um, the ideal gorilla is good at both. And the Salu Scouts were definitely good at both. And so, it's interesting that he writes this. Um, and uh, definitely somebody up there, maybe Ron Reed himself, Uncle Ron, yeah. you know, Lieutenant Colonel Ron Reed Daly, is probably reading this and like, okay, interesting. Roger that. Of course, he had his own experience in Malaya, so he was able to, you know, yeah. build on this, obviously, and he was an RLI Sergeant Major. So, um, I'm sure uh, Graham Wilson, the Major in the Rhodesian SAS, the last CO, definitely read this himself. A lot of big wigs in the Rhodesian Security Force read this. Yeah. And I can only imagine a lot of South Africans read this too and were like, okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll build on this because we actually know how to build on this. Yeah. 
he was relying on people that did not have the military experience of maybe like a Sankara or a Mobutu to build on this. Um, so hence why Zanu and Zapu were not always the most successful uh, running these kinds of ops, but they, they understood the mindset too, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting to see that everything you've just described is, is a Salou Scouty thing, mm-hmm. right? Again, he doesn't elaborate on it. It's just a shell, but it's there. And uh, it's not like the the African nationalists, the various African nationalists, were unaware of these tactics probably coming over from the other side, right? It just obviously they were not as good as it for, as as good as the uh, the so-called imperialists for various reasons of technology and tribal issues and um, organization. Organization. Yeah. Well. I think the nicest thing you can say about Nakrum is that Nakruma. Nakrum. You're having a real issue saying his name. Yeah. It's like you don't Nakruma. like him or something. I've yeah. been unbiased and yeah. you've been railing on him. Yeah. Calling uh, him stupid. <laughs> How dare you? I think the nicest thing you can say about Nakruma is that while much of his ideology was very simple and his yeah. parts of his book are a bit incoherent and uh, his personal political career ended in absolute disaster. It is true that he inspired combatants on both sides of the Rhodesian Bush War with this book, Handbook and, and for South Revolutionary African Border War. Bush War. Yeah, the fighters of Zanu, to a lesser extent Zapu, and probably a lot of the ANC and Swapo guerrillas, very some of them very much tried to follow the playbook of his handbook, and as we just mentioned, the Sela scouts almost certainly read it and probably took some, copied some tactics and then adapted them to actual reality. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, well, Nekrom and his kind of personal crusade in many ways was a failure, and, uh, spoiler alert, well, I guess African decolonization was a success. The Africa is nowhere near any sort of unified pan-African socialist vision, I think you could say. Yeah, he mirrored the Egyptian lady for no reason. Yes, yeah, it's, he also, it's he also closer allegedly, to be a, Oh, by the way, I should yeah. mention, because it's spicy, he allegedly, he allegedly did cheat on his wife with Erica Powell, the white secretary, okay. and an unnamed other Egyptian woman. Um, and there's allegedly... I, I can't say... I, I might get banned from the country of Ghana for talking about this anymore, because he's a national hero, but he, he, yeah. might have, he might have had kids out of wedlock. Okay. I digress. All right. Carry on. So, yeah, no... <laughs> Well, Nikrum and his, you know, grand vision was a failure. And I mean, yeah. the closest you can say Africa is now to a pan-communist state is that China's exploiting all of it. But um, his writings did help to inspire a generation of African guerrillas and warriors who were kind of of his ilk. Yep. And I think that's the kind of... He's certainly not a man among men, but if you were to say something sort of positive about him, I guess that would be it. From his perspective, he... He thought he was. He he thought he was. He thought he was, like, a great leader. From his perspective, he he wrote a book that probably inspired a lot of men who were more successful at doing what he tried to do. Significantly. Yes, okay. Um, We'll end with the Mao quote. Yeah, we'll end with a quote by the... the, Arguably the most successful revolutionary. Yeah, the, the better version of him. Yeah, the most successful communist revolutionary, I would argue, ever. Um, 
A revolution is not a dinner party, or writing an essay, or painting a picture, or doing embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle, so temperate, kind, courteous, restrained, and magnanimous. A revolution is an insurrection, an act of violence, by which one class overthrows another. And as much as a horrible person Mao Zedong was, who's got millions of dead people on his hand, he's got a point with that quote. If, if you're going to do a revolution, you can't do it by half measures. It's going to be greasy. It's going to be bloody. And uh, for all that we probably sympathize a lot more with the Rhodesians than with their opponents, uh, they I will say to his opponents, they generally weren't people to do things by half measures. And they, and they certainly believed wholeheartedly in the cause they were fighting for, just as much as the Rhodesians. So it's an important old, whole story. Um, Absolutely. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this little uh, foray into, quote-unquote, the other side. I like to, we'll try to bring that up a little more often in the future. But yes. um, it's, it's just, it's primary source is hard to find. And this was an interesting one that we found. It was mm-hmm. really interesting. Thank you again for listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast. This has been episode 27 of it, Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare. Make sure you catch all of the other 26 episodes on the Men Among Men Stories podcast website, menamongmenstories.com, Spotify, Google, Apple, podcasts, right? Yep. Place. All those. Uh, and uh, Pocket casts. Pocket casts? Okay. So basically anywhere you can listen to podcasts, you can find us. Pretty much. Um, or Commando Store. Make sure to check out my business, Fire Force Ventures, again, offering reproductions and modern iterations of hard-to-get camo patterns, fully operational now in the great state of Texas, www.fireforceventures.com. Just released uh, Silkies, which are I was really excited for, um, different patterns. So I have them in 3-2 Battalion now. I have them in Tiger Stripe, Rhodesian Brushstroke, and Belgian Brushstroke. So really excited for those. Great gift for Christmas. If you're in Canada, definitely check out Canada Camo gift for youpers and lumberjacks alike built on the bones of the fire force ventures operation in canada providing curated militaria apparel surplus hard goods largely for the north american market check it out camis.ca not commies.ca camis.ca and of course check out our friends at the commando blog mentioned them earlier you might be listening um, to us from the commando blog but uh, they provide all kinds of great firearms content from a variety of sources and subject matter experts you'll find Excellent articles about all things firearms, including related topics such as gear, militaria, combat medicine, fitness, lifestyle, and even video games and anime. If you're looking to write for them, again, send an email to dawn at commandoblog.com. That's dawn with a K. And if you're not a writer, not a problem. Check them out anyways. Great articles there, commandoblog.com. And again, that's commando with a K. Also, please check out our merch store. We have some really cool products there, including our world-famous Rhodesian Lion Horn Mugs and copies of Fire Force, Survival Course, and No Mean Soldier by Chris Cox and Mr. Peter McAleese, respectively. Also, we run a good chunk of this podcast off donations, so please do donate. You can donate either on Subscribestar or directly on our website for a one-time donation. Indeed, do consider supporting us on Subscribestar. And very special thanks to our Fire Force Ventures Buyers Club, who do actually quite a bit to sustain us. Um, basically, our bulk of our listenership. So, love you, Fire Club guys. You guys are fantastic. And Sluice Network people. A few Sluice Network people out there. 
that aren't Buyers Club. So thank you to you guys as well. Um, appreciate it. If you'd like to join the Buyers Club, get an inside scoop on what we do. Check it out at fireforceventures.com. And we'd like, as always, to extend a very special thanks to all active duty military and law enforcement personnel, including all other first responders, paramedics, EMTs, EMRs, firefighters, dispatchers, reserve personnel, sheriff's deputies, police officers, uh, all you guys out there, all you guys and gals are doing incredible work doing what you do to allow us to do what we do. Uh, and to those that have shared their stories with us in the past, uh, we we sincerely appreciate you, especially Chris Cox, Larry Jenkins, and uh, Mr. Peter McLeese. Always a pleasure. Bindu? So pull up a chair, grab a chibouli, and have a great day, guys. Thank you for listening. <laughs>